Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, as we hear it, um, let us be changed by it. Let it return to us. Let it feed us. Let it nourish us through the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. People will often ask me about this bulletin. Why we have the elements that we have within it. Why do we do these things? Why don't we do the things that this church down the road or that church down the road does? And in one sense, we get a foretaste of why we do what we do in worship here today from Exodus chapter 24. That actually, the, a lot of the key core elements of this bulletin, when you go home today or what have you, and you're thinking, what was that sermon about? There, hopefully it's, it's going to be more than this, but a large part of it is how we are to worship God. How God calls this congregation into worship. How he, uh, what elements in their worship does He have? this first congregation in all of sacred scripture. And so that's very much at the heart of our passage here today. That in one sense, this bulletin looks back to as far back as 3,500 years ago and says, we want things incorporated that when God coming to Israel, coming to this this nation he now calls a congregation, he first incorporated. And the first thing he does in our chapter today is he calls them to worship. He uniquely calls a distinct number of people, 74 people to be precise, to come and worship him. And we're going to see the fullness of what their worship looks like by the end, but I looked in the back. I don't know how many we have here today. We're probably at about 70 or 80. Uh, last week, we were at 72. I don't think Bruce and I were counted, so we were actually at basically 74 last week. And why were we here? Ideally, it was because you were called to worship. That... You had an opportunity to worship God, and so you came. I had, just last night, my, my mom was sitting cold in San Diego. It was 57 in San Diego. And so she called me up late last night at 9 o'clock, and she goes, you know, I'm sitting here cold. It's 57 outside. And then I looked at what the weather is out there in Waxel. It's 18 right now. That's really cold. Is anybody going to show up at church tomorrow? I, I said, well, I, I think there'll be some people at church. I don't, you know. We, we salt, we, we get salt the pathways, and we, we plow the, the parking lot. But the real reason I hope that you came to worship this morning is that you were called to worship. That you wanted to be in the presence of God when you had the opportunity 
Now, last week, as we looked at this passage, we saw this heavenly host, this, and we looked at Jude 5 and saw this as the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, but this heavenly host that we're told by God to listen to his word, and he has just finished talking about how he's going to, in one sense, clear the land of Canaan. But Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2, God is continuing to speak here. God has not stopped speaking, but then as he says this, he again finishes with what is we call a call to worship. And he says, basically, and, and so he calls them into worship. Now, you could use Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2 as a call to worship, but this morning we used Psalm 33, 1 through 3. But the reality is we're still following the same pattern. We're still having God's Word call us into worship this morning. And so, 74 respond. 74 are called. We have Moses. We have Aaron. We have Nadab and Abihu, who soon in Leviticus 10 we'll hear more about, who will try to get overly creative. They'll try to get novel ideas on what the worship service should look like. And God will punish them for it. But today they're not getting created before God. Today they are following the prescription of worship that God is setting forth in His Word. Today they will respect God's invitation and we'll have an se additional 70 elders that will be shown and join responding to God's call to worship. And for that small number gathered who ascend the hill, they will get a glimpse in their worship of the divine glory of God. A foretaste of the moment that they all wait, we all wait for, a foretaste of heaven in one sense during this wilderness experience that we call life. And then after the call of worship, what happens next? We have the reading of the Word in verse th 3. The verse tells us that Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. What were the words of the Lord? They were the commandments. We know that those Ten Commandments were uniquely spoken by God, but also there's this mention of rules. What were the rules? The rules were written by Moses on behalf of God. They are further commentary uh, on how the covenants, the commandments apply in our society, in our community, in our culture, how they offer a better way to go. And as the people are presented with the word of God, they then say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, what element of worship is this? This third one. It's actually a confession of faith. And it's a statement that teaches us quite a lot. First off, it teaches us that Moses' words are still words of God because they derive from God. That his words have just as much authority as a prophet, as God's own voice. But it also seems to be hinting at the fact that this first uh, congregation of Israel is struggling to fully understand the law. Now, this is a portion of Scripture where a lot of ink has been spilt, but I want you to kind of understand it this way. We've talked about this when we went through the commandments, 
The commandments, in one sense, give us a way of civil life, of, of how things should go. But the commandments are also a, and, and they're also a standard of, of how we should live in the image of God. Um, but also they are a mirror in one sense. And in the mirror, we see our blemishes. And in seeing the blemishes of our life, how we fail the commandments, there is this reality where we then run to Christ. We run to the sacrificial lamb. Now, this congregation is just in the infancy of worship. And there is a possibility that they might, when they had said this, really have believed that they could kind of li live this sinless perfectionism, let's say. But the more we live the Christian life, as we talked about last week, we unfortunately realize that inconvenient truth that we are compromisers. That the confession of sin even is in one sense a compromise. How much they understood that in this moment, I don't know. But I will say this, it's a, it's, there are certain theological camps that like to say they did the wrong thing. They should have immediately pled for mercy. They did the wrong thing in desiring to be this way. And I used to kind of entertain one of these theological camps. And I don't really feel that way anymore. I don't really feel that way anymore because when the Word of God is presented to the faithful, when the Word of God is presented to us, we are supposed to desire these things. We are supposed to desire to put God first. We are supposed to desire not to, to uh, have idols to the Lord. We are desire, um, to desire not to blaspheme God. We are to desire to honor His Sabbath. We are to desire to honor our father and mother. We are to desire not to kill. We are to desire... Uh, not to commit adultery. We are to desire not to steal. We are to desire not to lie. We are to desire not to covet. These are good things. These are things that we should yearn for. And the people in being presented with the Word of God, they yearn, they want to be this kind of individual. And that is a part of the Christian life. It's that bittersweet reality of this is who I want to be, but Lord, it's with the problem of sin, there's so much that is not yet in my life. And at this moment, after they have been read the word, we see in verse 4, this word and the rules given, they are written down. Now, this isn't the first thing in the wilderness that is written down. If you remember, it was in that battle. That battle where Moses went up that hill, and on the hill he stretched out his arms. And somehow they won the battle when the powerful arms were stretched out on that hill. That was the first time in Scripture where we are told this needed to be written down. But here we now have the, the reading of the Book of the Covenant, the reading of the Word of the Lord. And this is a key moment in the development of the Scriptures. See, best guess is there's possible that there were some writings, but God preserved His truth most likely by word of mouth through people like Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and, and Joseph. 
down through stories. But now, no longer are those stories being passed down that way, but they are going to be written down. We're going to have actual writings of Scripture. Because as they're becoming a new congregation, this congregation, which is also a nation, they now needed to move from the stories in one sense around the campfire to a more direct understanding of God and His Word in order to follow the true God more faithfully. In one sense, Israel is an illustration of the difference between milk and meat. The fact that as we mature in the faith, the faith isn't so much a faith that we're commanded to have, maybe by our parents, commanded to have by, by God, and so we have it, but it's actually a faith that we seek to grow in greater knowledge of. And to able to do that, to be able to have that word, to grasp that word, we want the word of God with us. This word of God is a gift so that we can grow in greater maturity about what God has said what God wants us to be so that when we say we want to be like that, we have a word in that we can reference and we can say, oh, this is who I want to be. When we are uh, awash in a world with all sorts of false superstitions, false prophets, false ways to go, false ways to find satisfaction and happiness in this life, here this moment we have a word being given to a congregation that God is saying, while kingdoms may rise and kingdoms may fall, you have a word that you can be sealed to, that you can know what I desire, what I want you to be. And so this is the first generation that receives a word like this, and it is the truth that this word would take 1,500 years from Moses to the Apostle John to unfold and to unravel. And one day there will be a very last generation of the congregation in the mortal world. But every person from this point to today has had a written place where they could go, where they could anchor their faith, a written word, a story of salvation about the plan of redemption that we could ground our worship in. This is the image I was created to be. This is the image that you were created to be. Oh, image that we're called to perfectly reflect. These beautiful words spoken by the Lord. And yet, here they go, and as they uh, wake up in the morning, and they hear this word presented once again, they say, oh, I want to be that Lord, I want to be these words that you have spoken. Then something rather remarkable happens. No sooner do they make this promise that they will honor these rules and commandments perfectly, then an offering is made. And this offering would have pointed back to two moments previously in redemptive history. The first being at, um, Abraham, or Abram at that point, when God walked between the two animals, but also even Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 3, when they are given animal skins to wear in order to give animal skins to wear it would require the life of the animal the covering that they wore and yet 
Something is done in this offering before God that is different than any other burnt offering in Scripture up until this point. In verse 5 there, I believe. And it's this. It's not just a burnt offering, but as the ESV puts it, it's a peace offering, or sometimes translated a fellowship offering. And what that means is this. The burnt offering was always fully for God. God got all the burnt offering. The peace offering or the fellowship offering was God sharing with the people. That the people got a portion and God got a portion. And there was a sweet communion in the fact that you came to God, you responded to God and His Word, and you did not leave empty-handed. You did not come before God without receiving something back from Him. This relationship wasn't just like the pagan Canaanite religions where you just go and you go make a sacrifice and, and, and that's it. But God blessed you in return, this true God of Scripture, this God who is calling this people to a more mature faith rooted in the Word. He always blessed you for coming to worship Him. Now, sometimes we don't notice it. Sometimes we don't believe it. Sometimes we say, ah, that worship service did nothing for me. But this is a promise here in the Word and the illustrations of this that there is a great exchange that happens. One of the reasons why I am excited that we're doing more communion here at the church and, and really between evening service and morning service, now four of the five weeks in a, in a month, if there's five weeks, you can have communion here, is that communion is a tangible reminder that we have a peace offering that we're our partakers of. That there is a sacrifice which God has held a portion back so that we can eat, we can partake. And he does that with his word, because his word is food for us, but also he does that in the meal. But here is true religion. True religion isn't, uh, is, is when I go to him, he gives to me. When I go to him, he gives to me. He blesses me. All of you have come here. You've responded to the call of worship this morning, and he will give back to those who come to him in faith. That is what the peace offering means. And then in the midst of this burnt offering and peace offering, the blood of sacrifice is collected. Half the blood immediately goes on the altar. And the altar represents the meeting place between God and humanity. It is in one sense the table of the Lord. But half gets stored in these basins. And it's an interesting thing, this Hebrew word for basins, if you were to open up, for instance, Strong's Dictionary, and you were to look at this Hebrew word used here, there's only one other place in all the Bible, in the Old Testament, that it's used. One other place. These basins are these massive basins holding blood, and it comes to us from Isaiah chapter 22, verses 21 through 25. And in Isaiah 22, God is speaking to Jerusalem. And it's that moment in God's word in this chapter, we have a very famous verse. Today we, we eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. 
And, and basically, God is, in one sense, rebuking Jerusalem at the time of Isaiah uh, because they will not repent. There is no uh, grieving over their sin. There is a, a struggle for them to have any true intimacy with God, desire any kind of morality. If you know anything about the time of the prophet Isaiah, the people had forgotten the very words of God. They had moved on from God's word. They cared little about it. And God is making clear the armies will surround Jerusalem. And then we hear from these verses. And it won't be until verse 24 that we'll see, see the word basins. But I'm going to read starting from verse 21, 25. Because in the midst of this uncaring people who do not have a moral compass, who don't care to repent, who don't care to hear the word of God, who will not come to worship the Lord their God, here is a prophecy that Isaiah gives. And he gives it really of Christ. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. Now listen to this, verse 23. And I will fasten him like a peg to a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang him, the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagoons, all the basins. This is the only other time in the Old Testament. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it, the load that was on the peg will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And so I'm suggesting to you that the blood from this basin is the assurance of pardon. It was the assurance of pardon for people in Moses' day. It was uh, also for the people in Isaiah's day. Now, blood also was a way to sign a contract, yes. And these people might not have fully comprehended it at this moment. But even Moses himself will make this clear later on in Exodus. And so here we have this wonderful moment, and in this moment, this is one of those moments because, again, the basins, the blood being talked about here, while we think of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it's not talked about this way. This chapter 24 is not highlighted the same way in the Old Testament as it is the New. When Jesus is in the upper room, what he's really doing is drawing all the threads that we just read from Isaiah 22, from Exodus 24, and and when Paul is preaching to the Hebrews and basically saying that Christ is going to be the great basin of blood that washes over us, that cleanses us. And so here, 
we see the New Testament will eventually take this imagery. And if you doubt that it takes this imagery, just consider what Moses then says as he sprinkles this blood on everyone. He says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Notice that Moses cannot say, This is my blood. He references that's the Lord's blood. The Lord has to give blood for this covenant to be ratified. It isn't blood that Moses can give. It's blood that only the Lord can give. And what is the key word that Jesus drops in the upper room in places like Matthew 26, verse 28, or we can read in Hebrews 9, verse 22? Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. He, repl- he makes clear that he is Lord, that he is God. And what happens next in this redemptive drama as we learn that the Lord's blood from this, these massive basins is being sprinkled unto the people unto salvation? It's that now the 74 selected members of the congregation, they can go up. And notice the wording there. It's went up. And the implication is that they're going up this mountain. They're going up Sinai. But yet Moses leaves this intentionally vague. And the reality is why he probably leaves it intentionally vague is that, well, you normally just went up a mountain in the world, in the pagan world, to worship your false god there. For these 74 who go up this mountain, they get a taste of heaven. The first thing they notice is the sapphires. In chapter 54 of Isaiah, Isaiah looks forward to a day where the sapphires would be in the very uh, worldly, I mean, uh, on Zion itself, on Jerusalem itself. But Ezekiel, we get the image of the sapphires several times. And the sapphire floor is not the general pavement of heaven, but as Ezekiel uses it, the sapphire is in one sense the floor of the throne room. And so what Moses might be alluding to, as it's understood by the later prophets, is that, and, and he might not even know this, but he, they seem to be maybe even getting a glimpse into the throne room of heaven possibly itself. They get a taste of heaven in this worldly place. They get a taste of heaven as they meet in the congregation together. As they share in fellowship together, they get a taste of heaven. God will not leave them empty-handed, and God feeds them in this place. God gives him nourishment in this place, and it says that God will not strike them down even though he should have struck them down. Why won't he strike them down? Because they're covered in the blood. They've been washed. They've been washed in the blood. And so they can be in his presence even though the tension of them being in his presence is obviously seen in the, in the passage itself. There's this verse there that makes it seem like God is, understands that he would be right to judge this people. And if we could see these people, if we could just see the, the host of 74 individuals that went up this mountain, they would be utterly unimpressive. Utterly unimpressive. They would have been, let me just ask questions. Do they have houses? No. Do they have wealth? Do they have, you know, this, this great track of land that they own currently? No. Well, they have bathed likely a lot. No. Could this land 
provide them with the food that they needed in order to sustain life for all this countless number of people. No, they were dependent on everything. They were essentially in conditions so bad that objectively speaking, just in the conditions that they had, no homeless person in America would trade places with them. Because at least they get free phones, and at least they know they're not going to like starve to death. They just need to sit outside of McDonald's. These sorts of things. They look utterly worthless on the outside. And by the way, have they been faithful up until this point in the wilderness? No. They've constantly fallen into sin. They've constantly been claim, uh, complaining. They've at times wanted to kill Moses. They've at kind times told God, God, I want nothing to do with you. And yet God still invites them in. God invites them in because they've been covered with the blood. They've been forgiven. And when you've been forgiven and you respond to that call to worship God, you see the goodness of him in his sacrifice. You are blessed. And so they are blessed. And we too, as we continue to grow in the Christian faith and we look at the word and we see the word of God and what it calls us to be, we know that we are utterly unimpressive people. That in ourselves we're utterly worthless, deserving and only deserving of being forsaken. And yet, for those who come to the Lord in faith, who respond to his call, they're washed in the blood. They're given a sweet communion. They're given a foretaste. And so God gave them a glimpse of heaven. Just as he gives us a glimpse of heaven. They were most blessed in their worship of the Lord that day roughly 3,500 years ago, in the middle of a wasteland of a world, those who responded to God's call to worship, those who heeded the word of God, those who confessed their faith in him, those who have received an assurance of pardon, those who have had communion in the midst of God, in such glorious moments, the faithful have a foretaste of heaven that the world just frankly fails to see and fails to be impressed by. And if we're being honest, we fail to be impressed by it too at times, where the greatest struggle can be just to come to church on Sunday morning. And yet, what an incredible God we serve who began our worship by calling us into this sanctuary for a taste of heaven this Lord's Day. Amen? Amen.